Wow, it is amazing to uh, just see God's handiwork in all of that. Thank you, brother. Well, good evening. Uh, I want to thank you guys for having my family and here tonight. Uh, it is a privilege and an honor to bring the word of God. Uh, I love your church. I send greetings from Grace Baptist Church, but I kind of consider myself LBC adjacent a little bit. Um, my daughters both graduated from the pre-K, just 50 feet there. Uh, and they, want, they tell me that they want to grow up to be like Miss Michelle, uh, you know. Uh, both your young adults and uh, my church's young adults have gone on retreat together. I've gotten a chance to get to know them and love them and uh, minister alongside of them. And so I'm just very excited to see what the Lord is doing in your church uh, specifically, but also in the greater New York area of churches. Um, and so may tonight he magnify himself. May tonight he glorify himself and feed us with his word. So why don't you pray with me? Lord, your word is rich. Lord, show us wondrous things from your word today. Lord, use this weak vessel to magnify you, Lord. Lord, may you feed us, and may, Lord, may we leave here changed, Lord, through your Holy Spirit and through your truth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been a weird year for sports fans. The Denver Nuggets won the NBA championship for the first time ever. Yesterday, some team named the Golden Knights won a hockey championship. The Jets have a good quarterback. It's debatable. You know, probably since Vinny Testaverde. If you don't know who Vinny Testaverde is, just picture Rob Piero with a lot of hair. <laughs> I can make that joke. <laughs> and the World Cup this year was in the winter. Raise your hand if you like to watch soccer. Now we know who the fake Americans are. <laughs> uh, no, it's a great game. Usually the World Cup play, is played in the summer, but because this year it was in Qatar and it's as hot as the surface of the sun there, they decided to host it in the winter. And I like soccer, but the one thing that I always found weird was that at the end of a soccer game, there is like, at the end of the regulation of 90 minutes, there is this undisclosed secret amount of time beyond the 90 minutes to account for things like stoppages and injuries. And that extra time is known only to the referee. So after 90 minutes, if the game is particularly close, you will see the players running harder. You will see the players striving with every fiber of their being to drive the ball, to get a shot at the goal. They're pushing with all their strength because they know time is almost up to win the game, and to win the prize. Please open your Bibles tonight to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90. Today we're going to be hearing from Psalm 90, and this psalm is a very special and unique psalm. One of the reasons for that is if you look at the title of the psalm, it says, A Prayer of Moses. The man of God. Not David, not the sons of Korah, but Moses is the author of this psalm. And because it is written by Moses, it makes it one of the oldest, it makes it the oldest psalm in the Bible. And Moses is the first author of a sacred hymn, written over 400 years before David. 
And that term man of God is a term used 70 times in the Old Testament. And it always refers to someone who speaks for God. Why is Moses called the man of God? It is because for many years, Moses was the intercessor between Israel and God. He was the one standing between God and Israel, praying for them, invoking God's blessing on them. He was their mediator, like Jesus is our mediator. And a true man of God is always a man of prayer. And he's interceding for those on behalf uh, interceding to God on behalf of them. And so in Psalm 90, Moses is interceding again for Israel. And he's praying for the children of Israel. And he's praying for them to learn an important lesson. So what is the lesson, Moses? What is Moses praying for? It's a lesson that Moses learned by being in the wilderness during Israel's wanderings in the desert. What should have been a short journey of just a few weeks for Israel, traveling out of Egypt into the promised land, turned into a 40-year ordeal before being allowed to enter Canaan. So why was that? Well, God judged the Jewish people for their unbelief. God's people went in endless circles, wandering in the wilderness, aimless and dying, before they could reach their destination across the Jordan River. And the lesson that Moses learned during this time and, and the lesson that he wants us to learn today and the lesson that I want us to learn today from this psalm is that we are to live our lives purposefully in the light of eternity. Jonathan Edwards best put it this way. He said, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Tattoo eternity on my eyeballs. Psalm 90 was written to get eternal eyesight to mortal man, and that is the title of the sermon. The highlight, the anchor verse, the focal point of this psalm is found in verse 12. Let's look at it. Verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. So why should we number our days? How are we to number our days? What does that even mean? Those answers are found throughout this psalm. And our outline and the lessons that Moses wants us to learn is this. Teach us to number our days because, point number one, God's perpetuity. Teach us to number our days because of point two, man's mortality. Point three, because of God's penalty. And point four, teach us to number our days because of God's mercy. God's mercy. Point one, God's perpetuity. Verse 1 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When we study the scriptures, we must consider the audience of the book. In 2 Corinthians, uh, the book that my pastor recently finished, uh, the audience is the Corinthians. In Matthew, the audience is mostly a Jewish audience. But in the Psalms, the intended audience is God. Moses directly addresses this psalm to the Lord. Few people on earth have had a strong, as strong a sense 
of the greatness and eternal majesty of God as Moses did. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, it tells us that Moses conversed with God face to face. So, Moses, how do you first describe God in the psalm? What is the first thing, Moses, that comes to your mind? He confesses that God is perpetual, that God is eternal. And it isn't surprising to us that Moses first confesses that God is eternal, our dwelling place. These are people that have been wandering around in the desert, in the wilderness, because of their disobedience to God. The Israelites have had no secure dwelling place on this earth. They had no place to call their home. One of the times in my life that I've felt most insecure is when Ruthie and I were living in the place before we were living in now. Uh, It was in a basement apartment. It was freezing cold. It was the middle of winter. Uh, We couldn't run two space heaters at the same time because they would trip the breaker. And we just had a brand new little baby girl, Carolina. The place had like one window. And we actually had not unpacked our stuff because we, and we were living out of the cardboard boxes. We didn't want to unpack the boxes at all for about four months. And that's just four months. Imagine 40 years of instability, moving from place to place, to place in the Middle Eastern wilderness. Moses acknowledges that God is the all-powerful and eternal one. How, how can, let's think back to Israel's history, how can God be the dwelling place for a wandering people? Even, right, he told Abraham to leave, to go. Throughout Israel's history, they were sojourners. But there has been the one constant throughout their history, and that is God. That is God. And Moses acknowledges this. He says, Before the mountains, before the earth and the world were created, from eternity past and from now until forever, you are God. There has never been a time when God was not. He is outside of time. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8 says, God says, Uh, God says to John in chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So, there was a time, if you can call it time, when God, in his triune nature, dwelt without anything or anyone else. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly displayed. There was no earth for him to put his attention on. There was no angels to sing his praises or to do his bidding. There were no galaxies to uphold by his power. There was no one but God. Not for a year, not even for a millennium, but from everlasting. Doesn't that blow your mind? And during eternity past, God was self-contained. He was self-sufficient. He was self-satisfied, in need of nothing. The creation of earth and the creation of man added nothing to God. Malachi 3.6 says, he changes not. So who is like this Lord? Who is like him? And this is particularly comforting for us, as it was for Moses 
Because in a world that is constantly changing, this world is constantly in flux. God is the eternal constant. And because God is eternal, we can depend on him. And today, brothers and sisters, you might feel like you've been wandering around in circles in your life, aimless. You may feel like helpless. You may be homeless, insecure in your position in life. I encourage you to make the Lord your dwelling place and place your full trust in Jesus Christ. Our souls can find rest in God, who is our dwelling place. What gave Moses a sense of feeling of home was the presence of God. He is saying, this, God, is my rest spot. With the Lord, I feel at home. Now, alternatively, you may feel very secure in many ways on this earth. You may have a steady job. You may have a steady income. The, the 401k is thriving. The mortgage is paid off. But unless the Lord is your dwelling place, you will not be at peace. And certainly, God doesn't see you as secure. So let me ask you a question. In an ever-changing world that is always unstable and insecure and in flux, where do you feel at rest? Do you rest in the dwelling place that is eternal God? And this is lesson number one. God is eternal. Why should we number our days, Moses? Because our God is perpetual and eternal. Point number two, teach us to number our days because of man's mortality in verses three to six. Verse three says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. So immediately after this point, Moses makes just the starkest contrast he could possibly make. That God is eternal, but we are not. Not only are we not eternal, but, but God is also the, the one in his sovereignty that controls our days and he turns us back into dust. The same material that we are made out of. Remember, this is a familiar passage back in Genesis 2-7. Moses writes, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Then as a result of sin in the fall in Genesis 3, God says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God is the one who formed us from dust, and he returns us, children of man, back to the ground. The number of our days has always been preordained by God. He knows them. And then Moses gives us three illustrations for our own mortality. Three pictures of death. Let's take a look at them. He says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years are like a day that has already passed. Do you know how long a thousand years is to human beings? A thousand years ago, paper money didn't exist. In the place that we're standing now a thousand years ago, there were only like two cultures. There was like the Algonquins and the Iroquois. But that is just breakfast time to God. Moses' point is not that time passes quickly for God, but rather it passes quickly for us. You know, I'm getting a little older, and when you're young, time moves very slow, 
especially in math class. <laughs> but in reality, time moves at lightning speed, at warp speed. Now, even if you should live like a thousand years like Methuselah, it's still only a day that has gone by or a watch in the night for the Lord. The second illustration is, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Our lives are fleeting. And after a short time, we fly away, forgotten as a dream. We know what this is like. Have you ever had uh, a dream when you went to sleep and it was so vivid, you were absolutely sure that it was real when you woke up? You were absolutely sure it was real. My wife Ruthie has the most boring dreams possible, right? She has dreams that she goes to the supermarket, okay? I have dreams where I'm on a spaceship. It's crazy. But even though the dream seems so real, we, we can't even remember it when we wake up. That is what Moses is saying life is like. It's like a dream of life. One day you're living, breathing, talking, walking, going to work, and then boom, the life is gone from you. What you have accomplished will eventually be forgotten by everyone. Let's just test this for a second. Raise your hand if you could remember your grandparents' names. Okay, keep them up. How about your great-grandparents? About half went down. How about your great-great-grandparents' names? How about one thing they accomplished? Come on, guys. <laughs> That's only a few generations. And most likely us, too, will be forgotten by others in a short time. The third illustration Moses gives for our mortality is like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. He's comparing us to grass, but not, not like our luscious grass outside of your church. It's the grass in the ancient Near East, in the deserts. So the way this works was in the evenings, and the mornings, it's really cold there. But by midday, it is scorching hot. And this brings the morning dew, which causes small twigs of grass to sprout up from the ground. But by noon, the sun scorches them. And they wither and they die. This is just like the span of our lives, Moses is saying. Spurgeon talks about the history of the grass. He says this. I love this quote. Here's the history of the grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And the history of man is not much more. Well, what is causing you, Moses, to consider these images of mortality? Why is Moses thinking about this? Well, remember, only two people out of the original group that left Egypt over the age of 20 made it to the promised land. Caleb and Joshua. What that means is there were two things that were constant for this nation of wanderers. One, setting up and breaking down tents, which is the worst part of camping. And two, death. Israel was surrounded by constant death and defeat and disappointment and despair. Moses probably performed more funerals than anyone who had ever lived. Even funerals to those close to him. Some commentators believe that 
Numbers chapter 20 is around the same time that Moses wrote this psalm, Psalm 90. So turn to Numbers 20 just for a brief second. And just scan over the, the titles. Just scan over that text briefly. In, in Numbers 20, Moses' sister Miriam dies... And she was really the only, one of the only people that remembers what Egypt was like with him. And then Israel continues to grumble about why they were taken out of Egypt to die in this wilderness. Moses strikes the rock instead of obeying God, and he hears that he's not going to enter the promised land. And then Aaron, his brother, whom he ministered with for 40 years, dies. This whole chapter was about dying. Death is all around Moses. And so Moses learns that you have to live your life in view of eternity. In our society today, we try to remove death as far to our peripheral as possible. I mean, years ago, people physically dug the graves for their family members. And now we just, we just give it off to other people. But Moses is constantly being reminded. Everyone that he was looking at is facing judgment. And everyone here, that as we look at each other, will face the judgment of God. Everyone in this room. You know what that judgment is? It's death. And it is no regarder of persons. Rich and poor. Famous and obscure. Intellectual and illiterate. A humanitarian and a criminal. All of us are all going to end up decomposing in the ground. And death is the great equalizer of us. It's like the rich fool who builds a bigger barn to store all his crops. He's about to retire, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And this man is presuming that he's going to be here tomorrow. What is the same today will be the same tomorrow. And we presume that too sometimes. Everyone knows they're going to die, right? Everyone, like, that mentally checks out for everyone here. But at the same time, we don't know it. We live contrary to that truth. It's like we're delusional. And friends, your time will run out. Probably the saddest funeral I've ever been to was a friend of mine in high school. His name was Billy Mack, and we were on the swim team together. He was, I kind of wanted to be like him in, in a lot of ways. He was one year older than me. Billy Mack was eccentric. He was outgoing. He was the life of the party. Uh, I wanted to be that way. And he was also like an athletic freak. Before I got saved my junior year, also, I wanted to be like him. He went to the Merchant Marine Academy, which is in the Bronx. And in the summers, they uh, take classes on the cruise boats. Like, they go off to different ports all around the world in the Atlantic, and they, they take classes. How cool is that? And he was so excited, he was telling me about it. Well, the first week on the boat, he gets a brain aneurysm and dies in his bunk. 19 years old. Dead. 
And it seemed like every person in my high school was at that funeral. There was a line around the block and I had to leave the building because of the wailing and weeping filling the room. It was just, it was just crushing. And you somehow live life like that's not going to be you one day. That's not going to be you. But one day that's going to be your funeral and one day that's going to be my funeral. For what is life, James says, but a vapor. But a vapor. So, God is perpetual. He's eternal. And one day that eternal God will return us to the dust. So Lord, teach us to number our days. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs because they are shorter. Those days are shorter than we think. Point number two is man's mortality. Point number three, teach us to number our days because of God's penalty. Starting in verse seven, God's penalty. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Verse 11 says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In this third section of Psalm 90, we find out that man's greatest problem is not just that we will die, is not just our mortality, it is that we are sinners and subject to the just wrath of God. A cheerful topic for a Wednesday night worship. Our greatest problem is not that you will die, but that we're sinners. And God pours out his wrath on sinners. In these verses in Psalm 90, Moses confesses that the, the sin of the people of Israel has provoked God's anger. And his penalty is the shortening of their lives. Israel's unbelief, they aggrieved God and provoked his divine righteous anger. God set their sin and their iniquity before him. He didn't turn away from that. He set it before his eyes. In Hebrews 4.13 it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is a sobering verse. God sees what is done in secret. Nothing is hidden from him. The light of his presence shines like a light, like a flashlight, like a high beam on our sins. Now you've got the, the cars with the LEDs that are just blinding you. It's like that on your sin. God sees what you see on your phone and on your computer. God sees the looks that you give to other people. And God hears the whispers of gossip. God even knows the thoughts of our heart. You may think you have gotten away from a certain sin, but all will be brought to that light in eternity before our eternal God. And the reason why our lives are shortened and are short-lived is because of our sin. In verse 9, Psalm 90 talks about our days passing away under divine wrath. And so we could draw a straight line, cause and effect connection, from sin to death. James 1.15 tells us, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown gives birth or brings forth death. So sin leads to the death of man, but, but sin corrupts 
And it also brings about the death of many other things. It, it, it brings about the death of our hopes, the death of relationships, the death of dreams, and the death of health. The spiritual death that separates us from God, and eventually, for unbelievers, sin will bring about the second death in eternal hell. So, brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of this and not treat our sins so lightly as we often do. God does not take our sin lightly. He does not. God always takes sin seriously. I mean, even towards Moses, the man of God. If we look back to Numbers 20, when Moses strikes the rock, he was 120 years old at that time. The man for 38 years was wandering, looking forward to entering into Canaan, which could have happened decades earlier. He'd been patient, but finally he lost it, and he denounces the grumblers, the Israelites. Look, you're Israelites, you're grumbling. You're no different from your forefathers. I'm sorry. I would have done the same thing probably much earlier, probably years earlier. But even still, this was a sad failure of Moses, and God takes it seriously. He does not allow him to enter the promised land. He always takes our sins seriously. In verse 11, it says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who considers the power of your anger? That word power in this verse, in verse 11, in Hebrew, it's the word az. And it's used throughout the psalm several times to describe God's omnipotence. But in its context, usually, it's used to speak of God's mighty voice that rules over all. It's, it's used to convey God's security and safety and his strength. Like in Psalm 61, which describes God as a mighty rock. Same word. Same word in Hebrew. But look how it's being used in this verse, in verse 11. The power of his anger and the power of his wrath. And do we really pause to consider the eternal wrath of God? Hebrews 12, 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. God's wrath consumes all that is unholy. Our God hates the sin of man so much that he killed everybody in the world except for eight people by drowning them to death. And just in case you thought that was something that happened in the Old Testament, think to the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. Right? They lied about their giving, and God killed them on the spot in church. Our God is a consuming fire. Think about, I, I remember I heard uh, a preacher say, when I came to the Trinity Conference, when you guys were still RGF, and one of the preachers said, consider what is the quality and length of his love towards us. I think it was John 17. Right? Us who are united to Christ, what's the quality of his love towards us? It's perfect. What's the, the time span of his love towards us who are united to Jesus Christ? Infinite. But think about now his wrath. His wrath is just as immeasurable and infinite 
as it is poured out on sin and sinners in hell. Well, what about your sin? At the end of your brief life, you will either be the subject of this immeasurable, all-consuming wrath for all eternity without hope of escape or by surrendering to Christ, seeking God's grace and forgiveness. And Jesus stood in your place on the cross, becoming, as it were, your sin, absorbing the wrath of God for your sin, suffering God's penalty on you, for you. He is your scapegoat, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you haven't believed on the Lord or you aren't sure, cry out to the Lord today. Believe Moses' lesson for us here. And don't ignore eternity and God's judgments on our sin. Our response to God's wrath should be uh, reverence and awe and to worship him. I mean, see, you see the urgency in Moses' words here, but you also see them in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, Behold, now, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The best way that you can number your days is by confessing your sin and your need of Jesus Christ and repenting of that sin. Friends, what are you waiting for? How many more times are you going to come and perhaps sit in these seats? How many more times and opportunities do you have left to hear the gospel and respond? Are you presuming on the riches of God and his kindness and patience towards you? He hasn't struck you dead yet for your sin. And don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So let's work backwards. Let's review. The lesson is we need to, be, we need to number our days because God sees all our sin and there are consequences to our sin. We don't fear God as we ought to, so Lord, teach us to number our days because we will die and stand before him who is eternal. Our last point, point number four, God's mercy. Teach us to number our days because of God's mercy. And I want to zoom in here on verse 12. Verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Verse 12 is the focus verse of this psalm. I said that earlier. In response to God's eternality and our imminent death, Moses asked God to teach us to number our days. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean? It, it does not mean that we could possibly know the number of our days like some kind of you know, fortune teller and be able to subtract each day from our remaining days. That's impossible. But it does mean we need to value our days. Consider your days precious and few. We can't waste our days. We can't waste our time. We must be careful not to waste our time and our life in the temporal things. We aren't to waste our time in the things that are inconsequential or, or frivolous or peripheral or unimportant. But we are to invest our time for eternity. 
And this is convicting for me, whom my wife often calls me the man with a million hobbies, master of none. I can't be pursuing these peripheral things with my heart in light of the few days we have left. So how do we make each day count for God? There's three thoughts I have on this. First, which Moses does earlier in the psalm, we recognize life's brevity and our mortality. Secondly, we, like notice this. Notice he says, teach us. We have to be taught this, right? This perspective, this eternal perspective, this eternal eyesight does not come naturally to us. It doesn't. We naturally will waste our days. We will. On our own, we will squander this life. We need God to be our teacher. We need the eternal Lord to instruct us. So pray. Pray. We've got to pray for this eyesight. And thirdly, we live each day for God. Earlier I quoted Jonathan Edwards. When he was a young man, he wrote something called the Resolutions. They capture what Moses is saying here about not wasting our time and numbering our days. And I'll read a few of them to you. Jonathan Edwards says, Resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Not one moment. Resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Think about that. When you leave here, if it's the last hour of your life, how will you spend it? If it's the last hour you have with your kids, how will you spend it? Resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell torments. July 8th, 1723. If we could possibly know the joys of heaven or the terrors of hell, how we would redeem the time. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray. We need to pray for this perspective. We need to wake up. Do you think that you will live forever? Do you think you'll always have these opportunities before you? We need to redeem the time now. Today, if you don't know him, is the day to dedicate your life to the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to wake up. Are you living for God now? You're going to die. Don't waste an hour. Invest your time now. This is what Moses is saying. This is what Psalm 90 is all about. And if we do this, God says we will gain a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom. Well, what is a heart of wisdom? Well, I'll tell you what it is not. What is the opposite of that? It is living like a fool. Right? What does the Bible say about fools? In Psalm 14:1, it says, The fool says, In their heart there is no God. In their heart there is no God. Psalm 14. But notice how the fool is saying, It's in their hearts. They're not saying it out loud. Like no one in this church, in this room tonight, would say out loud, there is no God. The fool says in their hearts, 
Today, there are professing Christians that live like there is no God. They live like practical atheists. Like, like somehow they will avoid death. Like somehow they will avoid seeing God's eternal judgment. Like God doesn't see them wasting their time in unbelief. So I ask you, what would life be like if you sought to not lose a moment of time? If you were intentional about your time for the Lord? If it were the last hour of your life, would you be binge-watching Netflix for four hours? Or would you be timid to share the gospel with your neighbor or coworker? Paul understood this as he says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing God's wrath, we persuade others. And this is wise living. He who wins souls is wise. So we need to know this truth also in relation to where the Lord has us in life. We need to teach, teach us, Lord, teach us to number our days as, as laborers, as people in the workforce. You know, one day you, adults, will not be in the workforce anymore. The rest of the world, right, is dying to retire. That's all I hear people talk about at my job. But what about those people in your office? What about the souls in your classrooms or the folks at your job site? You have a limited amount of time to be a witness for Christ to them. How long will we say we're going to share Christ with them another day when the opportunity is better, tomorrow or next week? Who will be in heaven because you used your time well? And devoted yourself to the sharing of the gospel and making disciples of all nations. Lord, teach us to number our days as laborers. How about moms and dads? Teach us to number our days as moms and dads. In 13 years, my oldest daughter, Amelia, will be headed off to college, wherever that might be, probably Harvard. Certainly the days are long and the years are short. Where did the time go? It's like this. Have eternal eyesight when you spend time with your kids. The time we spend with our children, building memories with them, talking and giving them our hearts, what's important to us, is not a wasted day. It's not a wasted day. This is how they seek Christ is important to us. We can show them the greatness of God by the way we live. This is how a foundation of the gospel is built in their lives. Lord, teach us to number our days as fathers and mothers. And then teach us to number our days as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of a church. And with our time here, make it your goal to serve and encourage the saints. I spent a lot of time with a couple of brothers from your church, particularly Jonathan and particularly Henry, and there is not a single time when we get together where we don't encourage you, where I don't feel in- encouraged greatly by Henry or Jonathan. They don't waste their time when they're talking to me. I am greatly uplifted and strengthened by their, our conversations, by their exhortations, by their prayers for me, 
by them sharing verses for me, giving wise counsel. Be like those guys. We don't know how wide our regular service to Christ and his bride will bless and affect the saints. We should be busy about those things. You should be busy bringing meals over to saints' house who need them. Busy yourself with these things because our days are numbered when we could do that. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 uh, exemplifies this and talks about this. Ephesians 5, verse 15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The best thing we could do is encourage the saints with God's word and love them practically and pray for them. Lord, teach us to number our days as brothers and sisters. The second petition that Moses gives here in verse 16, it says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So verse 12, teach us the number of our days. If that's the lesson we're supposed to learn in this psalm, to number our days, the way we learn that lesson is found in this verse, verse 16. So the lesson is in verse 12, but the way we learn that lesson is in verse 16. He says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. To live a satisfied life in the Lord with eternal perspective is only learned in one school, and that is by looking at the work of God in his word, in his word. And we see that in verse 16. Lord, remind us of your work in your word. Satisfy us in the morning when we come to you with your steadfast love. Satisfy us. Moses is here. He's interceding for his people. And he's saying, remind us of your works. I heard a recent sermon uh, at a men's retreat from Pastor Joe Lasardo, And he asked this question. He said, why do some brothers seem to press on better than others? It's because they know Jesus better. We need to get to know Jesus better through his word. To have an eternal eyesight and perspective, we must be looking at the work of God, particularly the finished work of Christ. It's where we get our confidence from, is it not? It's where we get empowered to live for God, is it not? The cross is where we see God's mercy most clearly. And Moses saw that mercy through the deliverance of God's people from enslavement in Egypt and from Pharaoh. But we see the deliverance from our bondage to sin and the wrath of God through Jesus. Moses outstretched his arms to part the water in two, but Jesus' arms were pulled and outstretched on the cross. And the veil of the temple, the symbol of our separation from God, was torn in two, bringing us near, allowing us to now pass through to heaven in God's presence. And brothers and sisters, we need to meditate 
on these truths for our minds to be renewed, for us to be stirred up in our spirits, for our religious affections to be stirred up for the Lord. And we need to be reminded in the word to have an eternal perspective. You will never learn this perspective with your own intuition. Remember, it doesn't come naturally. You will never learn this eternal perspective. You won't go throughout the moments of your day when you wake up to when you go to sleep looking to eternity by spending little time in God's word. It won't happen. It just won't. But one, I just want to point out one interesting thing in verse 16. Moses here could be both referring to the great deliverance of God's people from the Egyptians, but he also could be referring to the work that he is confident the Lord will do in the future, right? He could be working, he could, he's looking back, right? He's seeing God's faithfulness here, but he also could be talking about the confidence he has in the Lord's work to come. He knows the Lord, even if he's not going to use Moses, will bring his people to the promised land because God is faithful. And as Christians, our best days are ahead of us. Amen? Our best days are ahead of us and not behind us. And we should be expecting to see his work. He works in our lives to sanctify us and to satisfy us with his steadfast love, like it says in verse 14. His work in the church, as we heard earlier, and in the lives of our brothers and sisters, he is faithful to do it. We can count on him to work. We can count on him to use the preaching of God's word and his truth to present the bride of Christ mature. We can count on him to work to bring those from death into life. So his mercy, point number four, his mercy should propel us to share the truth with others as well. The fact, the very fact that God's mercy is available to sinners who repent should motivate us to redeem the time and share the gospel joyfully and be a good witness of his mercy. You know, how will those people at your jobs and in your school, how will they hear? How will they believe unless someone tells them? Lord, teach us to number our days because of his mercy. And to that end, we need the Lord's grace to be upon us as we seek to build his kingdom. In the final verse of this, of this chapter, it says, let the favor of the Lord be our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God's undeserved favor is what establishes the work of our hands to build his kingdom. Psalm 127, you know this verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. They build it in vain. Only the eternal and perpetual God can establish and make stable our work, right? If we try to minister without the Lord, we do it in vain. There'll be no good fruit to come from that. Only he can make our ministries effective. Only he can produce the fruit from our labors. Only God could add the increase from the truth we teach our children. So saints... Do you go about your day realizing that if you labor in your own strength, it's in vain. But if you rely on the Lord, if you trust in the Lord, if he will establish the work of your hands. 
He will produce the fruit from it. He will make it stable. So saints, will you pray that God would teach us not to waste our time and use it for his kingdom? To have eternity stamped on our eyeballs so others will be blessed, so that when we die, which will happen sooner than we think, and appear before God the Father, we are going to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So in closing, if you find yourself watching a soccer game, somehow, think about how we should be striving for eternity. Think about how we should be pressing on Think about how we should be keeping eternity in our eyesight throughout the moments of our day. We need to live life like the end of that soccer game, right? After the regulated 90 minutes, we don't know the amount of time we have left. Only the referee knows. Only God knows. We need to strive with all our strength to run the race well, to press on well. One day, probably sooner than you expect, you will meet Jesus face to face. Lord, teach us to number our days. May we live every year and every hour with an eternal perspective. And I would like to leave you off with a well-known line from the poem by C.T. Studd. Only when life will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Amen. You pray for me. Pray with me. Lord, May we see our lives as you see them, Lord. Lord, our our time here is brief. Help us, Lord. Lord, help us to live for you, not for ourselves, Lord. Help us to build your kingdom with the strength that you provide. Lord, help us to live out the gospel with the strength that you provide, Lord. Help us to see our time here as brief, Lord, and to press on, to strive, Lord, for your glory. Lord, we are living sacrifices to you. May it be true, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.